knowing that they had something of value to offer, that they were capable of something, just unlocked a confidence in them that was incredible. I knew I had to go lean into this thing full time. My name is Louise Newsom, and you're listening to The Makers, brought to you by Trade and Prosper. On this episode, you'll meet Kelly Lingard, CEO and founder of Unshattered, a Dutchess County, New York 501c3 nonprofit social enterprise helping women who are successfully winning their battle against addiction. Unshattered employs women in recovery in order to build pathways toward economic independence and sustain sobriety through crafting bags and accessories from repurposed materials. In 2015, Kelly stepped away from her executive career to focus on Unshattered after long admiring the social enterprise model using business to solve social issues. Each bag incorporates a gold metallic thread somewhere, and that is a nod to the Japanese art form of kintsugi. When a piece of pottery was broken, they would use gold in the cracks to put it back together. That term means more beautiful for having been broken. To date, Unshattered boasts a 0% relapse rate for the women employed with the company. I grew up in central Pennsylvania in Williamsport, which is the home of Little League World Series baseball. I went to college in Indiana and then took my first job with IBM out there in Rochester, Minnesota, and then came out with IBM in 2008 to New York. Which school were you at in Indiana? Taylor University, just a small school north of Indianapolis. Yeah, my son just graduated from IU this Okay, spring. yeah. Yeah, yep. so he was out there. So when did you start Unshattered? It was a December of 2012 that I heard a woman named Emily share her story at a women's event at my church. And she talked about her story of addiction and recovery. She was from a broken home and her mom was ill in bed a lot. And at eight years old, Emily was taking care of herself and her mom, her brother, and had a friend with a 15-year-old brother who thought it would be funny to get an eight-year-old high. Fast forward 10 years, she was a homeless IV drug user. And for the first time in my life, I thought, oh my gosh, there's, there's no other outcome to that story. She was eight without a lot of supervision, offered something by an older boy that evolved into a full-blown addiction. And previously, my attitude, I always say, was pretty judgmental about people struggling with addiction, thinking, oh, you just stop sticking a needle in your arm. You need to get a job. Be more responsible. Time to grow up, whatever. Had no clue about um, how often it starts before teenage years, how difficult it is to get out of and how much pain is behind those stories. And so I got involved with the recovery home where Emily was at the time in Garrison, New York, the Hoving Home, and just fell in love with these women doing the hard work of recovery and admiring their story so much of what they were doing to get well. But when they finished the program, even though the home overall has a phenomenal success rate, for the ones that didn't have an education or didn't have job skills, but most importantly, didn't have a safe community to go back home to, it was really, really difficult to maintain it. Um, not having a support network, a family, somebody that you could lean on to get started is very, very difficult. And so they were going back to the same, they say, people, places, and things, and it's just in entirely impossible to maintain your sobriety back where you came from. You can't willpower your way through living the same life and just trying not to use. So during that time, you were in corporate. I was. You mentioned IBM. And how long were you there? 16 years. So the impact of this day 
yeah. and meeting this this young lady and hearing her story. Yeah. What made you take that leap? How did you come up with all this? I had always admired the social enterprise model, using business to have a good impact in the world. And so when I met Emily and got involved with the ladies at the home, they run their organization completely on donations and fundraising. So initially the idea was, how can I help them raise some income? I had my grandfather's suede coat after he passed away and hung in a closet for many, many years. And so way back when I cut it apart, took out the good pieces of suede and made a handbag. And so when life intersected with Emily in the Hoving home, I thought, oh, I, I, I knew how to sew growing up. My mom taught me. I think I could teach a couple of the ladies. We probably could get a couple of coats donated that we could make some bags out of, help them raise some money. And I remember telling my father that idea at Christmas dinner that year. My big goal was to raise $10,000 for the home. And my dad said, oh, that's a lot of bags. Good luck. <laughs> So we started making them and we blew through that number in a hurry, just a couple of months. And so it was like, okay, I think we're on to something here. Then I started to recognize that it's not just about the income or the bags, that they were making something beautiful that somebody wanted to purchase. And the way that their eyes lit up when that happened was unbelievable and really truly became a part of their healing, knowing that they had something of value to offer, that they were capable of something, just unlocked a confidence in them that was incredible. I was doing it as a project. So it was right. nights and weekends through 2014. And it was August of 2014. Again, I'm back in church and my pastor does a sermon about the calling of one of the Old Testament prophets who when he's called, he's plowing a field. And at that moment, he slaughters the oxen, burns the plow, and completely commits to going and doing what he's been called to do. And I went home and I cried all day, not because I was disappointed, but it was just that emotional moment of I knew. I knew I had to go lean into this thing full time. Um, so my husband and I talked about it all day. I think Monday or Tuesday, we went to see our financial advisor just to say, if I leave my career and I never make another dollar, what does that look like for us? scheduled an appointment to meet with my boss the following week to let him know that I was going to wrap up my job. I had a responsibility for a billion dollars of IBM's PNL at that point, so that was, it was a big job. Uh, so I notified them, it was the last week of August, that I needed to put a plan in place to wrap up my job and be ready to go. And then it was the end of January when I left. January of 2015, left my job. What were some of the first steps you took to get yeah. this infrastructure well, I was, built? I was realizing at that point that the issue wasn't just job readiness. Like I said for a while, in the beginning, I thought, oh, we're doing some fundraising. And then it was, oh, wait a minute. We're actually making these women ready for the workforce, leadership skills, having a track record. One of the first things I did at that point was to start offering six-month internships so that they had a track, positive track record of... She showed up on time. She worked hard. She was responsible. She has a skill set she can take forward. But what I realized is that the real problem is not about job readiness. It's about access to a job. When they finish a recovery program, they have nothing. They came in with a shirt on their back. They don't have any money. They don't have a car. You can't pay first and last month's rent on an apartment. You have no support network. What are you going to do? Even if you get a job, which, by the way, there's all kinds of barriers to employment. A lot of them have felonies. They have no track record. 
often they don't have an education, but even if you could get employment, you can't access that employment. And so I realized the problem was a lot bigger about solving that ecosystem of a continued place to live, transportation, safety, and employment. So where was the funding coming for all this? It has been pretty much self-funded along the way. So we, we've we had some grants come in that we were able to use when we did the six-month apprenticeship. We had a grant to work out of the Orange County Business Accelerator. So we were there for six months. That's when we hired our first full-time employee. And then coming out of there, we kind of proof of concept. We had enough revenue to realize that we could do sustainable jobs. My church actually provides the building that we're in. So we have a 2,000 square foot studio. We pay our own utilities to be here. We don't pay rent. That's a gracious gift from them to invest in these women's lives. But we got a grant for the industrial machines that we use. Our model is that 100% of what you spend on a bag goes completely to benefits and employment for the women. And I do fundraising to cover all of our operational costs and salaries um, for, we have a production manager now that we've hired, you know, things like services, internet service, the trash, all the things that you need to have to run a business. We do fundraising to cover those things so that we can channel 100% of what you spend on a bag back to the women. And I don't take a salary to run it. And how many full-time women do you have here now? I have 10 as of last week. That's amazing. And what what has the turnover been like during the time? I mean, the women that are here now been here since the beginning and you built from that? Or have some women actually left and gone on? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, I'm going to answer that in terms of the model, because sometimes people say, oh, you'll just have them for a year and then move them on. Um, that will be true for some. This probably is first and last job for some. Um, So it's a little bit of a mix. And we wrap our employment around an ongoing personal and professional development curriculum. So they continue to learn things like relationship skills, professional skills, grocery shopping on a budget. Uh, You know, how do you get back into a romantic relationship after the history that you've been through? So all those things that you need to continue being a successful adult and then to start giving back to your community are part of our curriculum here. So we have had some women move on. A couple have gone on to college. Um, A couple have gone on to work for recovery programs, helping women now who are at the beginning of their journey. And then the longest employee that we have had here is about two years of full-time employment with the company. We've been doing full-time employment for two and a half years. So the longest one is um, just hitting two years now. So, Do you think you inspire entrepreneurship in some of the women? I think so. My hope is that eventually some of them will actually launch into running companies of their own. I guess one really important thing to mention is that in doing two and a half years of full-time employment, we have not had a single relapse on our payroll, which is unheard of. The national relapse rate, particularly in the heroin crisis, the opiate crisis, is 80% after recovery. And so to see them continuing to choose well and do well has just been phenomenal. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it is the community that they are in together. So people ask me to describe what are we. We're a community of like-minded women committed to sobriety, expressing our value and purpose through work, and committed to ongoing personal and professional development. And I think it's all three of those elements, a sisterhood of women who have all been through the same kind of things together that they can lean on and encourage and understand each other. 
doing something of value, finding out who they are, what they were created to be, what they're gifted at and what they're capable of. And then just that piece of continuing personal professional development, really, you know, it's, you're never there, you never arrive. And so I think one of the best things, hopefully that I do for them is to allow them to watch me learn. So I try and constantly learn in front of them, which also means I have to screw up in front of the team. <laughs> That's not the fun part, but but to give them the model of you don't get it right on the first time. You you try and you mess it up and that's the only way to learn and you do better the next time. The Makers is brought to you by Trade and Prosper. Here we share the stories of individuals and businesses that make our communities. We believe in those who are committed to doing well by doing good using their hands, minds, and hearts to create a better place for us all and believe that a little sweat and a lot of sharing turns a community into a populace of prosperity. Trade and Prosper is a forum where those like-minded individuals meet to trade ideas, information, goods, and services, as well as build long-lasting relationships that enable them to expand their reach locally and also globally. For more information on our organization and for more podcast episodes, head over to tradeandprosper.com. Follow us on social media for the latest news and events about businesses near you. Where are you sourcing your fabrics from? I see so many different types of fabrics. All over the place. I mean, word has gotten out. We have some uh, really high-end furniture companies that have donated when they do, you know, however many thousand couches, and then they have several hundred yards left over. That comes to us. Ultra Fabrics down in Terrytown. that next time you're in a restaurant or a hotel, you're probably sitting on or touching Ultra Fabrics um, material. We get a lot from them. Mood Fabrics, we now have a partnership with them from Project Runway fame has started donating to us. Interior designers that have scrap from projects that they're using. We use sets from Broadway shows out of the company in Newburgh. Scenic Arts donates to us sets that they've painted for Broadway shows. West Point, we have a relationship with who donates uh, military uniforms that we use. We got some from an automotive company who did restoration of antique cars. And so they had a roll of the original 1955 Mercedes-Benz upholstery that we have in stock, which is amazing. How are you helping them with housing? I mean, if they're coming from different states. Yep. So our model is to treat them like entrepreneurs. And so they start with a 10-week training apprenticeship. During that time, we provide room and board at the Hoving Home. Uh, transportation is provided, and then they get a weekly stipend. So they have 10 weeks to learn the skill set. And then by virtue of the quality, quantity, and the attitude of their work, they're eligible to create employment for themselves here. And so I really try and use the language of choice all the time. It's not me deciding whether to hire you. It's you choosing if you're going to do the work and you're committed to your future to do the work required to have employment here. Right now, I am in the process of making a, a cosmetic bag. Um, as you can see, it starts out with the four, just four pieces of material, and we just sew a zipper on it and builds from there. Right now, I am using the, um, the ACU, the West Point uniforms. So we uh, cut them up and size them up and make them so that they turn into a really beautiful purse. They become full-time employees and they can live in transitional housing on the campus of the Hoving Home. 
But our record has been that anyone who's been with the business for 14 months or more is living in their own home or apartment. And so we have very generous people in our community who believe in our model, believe in these women, want to help them get back on their feet. Obviously, housing in the Hudson Valley is very, very expensive. Transportation's difficult. The bus line doesn't run much outside of kind of the highly populated areas. And so we've just had very generous people who have said, we're in, we'll reduce our rent, we have an apartment available, and we'll partner with you to make it accessible to the women on your team. We have been so dependent on the generosity of our community, and it's not just the tangible gifts um, as much as that's required to keep things running, but it's the investment that people have made in the individual women themselves to come here to look them in the eye, to compliment the products, to invite us to shows and events. I wish that people could just watch what happens when they see that people believe in them. It's beautiful. It's watching a flower bloom right in front of you when, when this community pours into them and says, your work is amazing. We love what you're doing. We are for you and we want you to succeed. I try and let them have as much decision-making capacity about the business as I can. They run the sales, they run the marketing, they do the events, they handle all of the shipping, they load products on the websites, they design the bags that they're doing, they sew all of them. My job is to clear a path for us to grow, to build the ecosystem that is financially stable to run all of that, and then to just give them the resources and the skills to succeed as much as they possibly can. I mean, do you run like a fashion business in that sense? thinking of seasons and styles? I do. You know, we I took a couple of gals last year down to a seminar at Parsons School of Design. It's been an interesting journey because coming out of corporate worlds, I think, oh, I'm an entrepreneur running a small business, but it's a nonprofit. Okay, I'm running a nonprofit. I got to learn how to do that. And then I went to this thing at Parsons and I was like, oh, I'm running, I'm running a fashion business. I better figure out how to do that. <laughs> You and I talked before we did the interview about how much we both love a challenge and love new things and love to learn. And so, you know, people tease me in life that I always choose to do the hardest things possible. And that's probably true. So it's being an entrepreneur of a nonprofit that's a fashion business, helping women in recovery. There's a lot of layers there. I'm seeing this hanger here that's got a bunch of fabrics clipped together with little notes. Explain to me what this is. Yes. This looks important. Yeah, it is. This is our kit rack. So we have a team who chooses the fabrics that we're going to use, matches and pairs them together, decides what style bag we're going to make out of them, and then they cut the kit, so it's got to be cut very precisely. And then they have a label on there that tells the designer which fabrics go on the inside, which ones go on the outside, what style of bag they're going to make out of it. So then our artists who sew can just come and grab the next kit in line and make whatever is described on the label. First lens is what is best for the women on the team. Always, whether that is an HR decision, whether that's a financial decision, whether that's a type of event that we might go to, any kind of policy, what's best for the women on the team. I think, I hope that they know that that's true. I give them a lot of input into the, into the decisions that I make as well. And sometimes what's beneficial to them is not what I thought. And so we talk a lot about what they need and how things feel differently to them than how they might feel to me. Um, maybe an example of that is I was developing a self-assessment for 
women who think that they're ready to move on to their next job and to try and frame a conversation that can help give them some some insight themselves about their readiness to move to the next level. I, of course, have an opinion about that, but they, they again, it's their choice. They get to choose. So how can I create a conversation that helps them to look at some things in their life to assess whether or not they're really ready on their own? So I made this little survey, had these categories, rank yourself one to five and all the categories, add up the points, and then you get maybe a, you know, a score of up to 100, whatever it was. And so I sat with a couple of the women and said, oh, I made this self-assessment. What do you think? Does this work? Does it accurately represent what you think readiness would look like? And the feedback was, Kelly, you know, you've always been an A student. You always are going to work so hard to ace the test. And so if you take this and you score 80 out of 100, you're probably happy that you got 80 points. We are devastated that we didn't get 100, and so why we're never even going to try because the problem with us is always the gap. Like, you see, ooh, I know how to do better next time. I know how to work on those things. I know how to close myself from an 80 to 100. I see possibility and opportunity there. They see the gap as complete failure that they're never going to be able to close. And so she said, even if we take the test and we get 30 out of 100 feels terrible, but if you just change the scale of the number of points that you get per category, if we got 300 out of 1,000, that feels better to us than 30 out of 100 because we got 300 points. That's good, right? So it was an entirely different shift of how they look at achievement and scoring versus the way that I do. What are some of the major adjustments you've had to do during this time to meet the needs and also to be able to keep the sense of communication going? Yeah. Learning that on day one, I have no credibility. That in the corporate world, the title, the position, the decision-making capacity, the experience all holds credibility. And I'm going to trust somebody that I work for because I know all of those things are true about them. Here, almost every single person in their life has hurt and disappointed them, in particular, the ones that they've trusted. And so just because I say something just because I say I'm for them, just because I say I'm making a decision in favor of them, they don't believe me until they see it. And so learning that not only do my actions matter, but that I have to let them watch my actions. It's like your teacher in seventh grade always said, show me the math. Don't just show me the answer, show me the math. And I think in corporate world, you could show your answer. And here you have to show the math. You have to show every single day while you're in the decision-making process, while you're wrestling with something, while you're learning in front of them why I'm choosing one versus the other. And so I just, I work hard to be transparent about what's happening in the space where I'm running the business and how I'm trying to be really intentional of understanding, about understanding how that impacts them. The average age that they started using on this team was prior to 12 years old. And so there is a huge gap in learning. It's like everything that you learned between 8 and 25 was lost because they were in crisis trying to survive. And so there's a lot of skill sets that got lost along the way that I received naturally growing up. 
And I think what happens is they get boxed out of opportunities or they get judged or they don't know that they're missing a skill set. And I think what is making Unshattered work is that I truly believe that a lot of the struggles that they face are a lack of a skill set. And so if I can tease that out of what I'm trying to teach and articulate it, they can learn it and then feel powerful. We talked a little bit earlier about the speed of the business and and the priorities are different here, right? It's about the the confidence and capabilities that we're building in the people. Um, one of the other major things is that our corporate America structure and our educational system is built on shame and consequences a lot. And so when people misbehave, it's this threat of, am I gonna lose my job? Or am I you know, gonna lose a privilege at work or not have access to something? And I'm working so hard to not grab or reach for all of the things that I know how to do to build them here. And so I spent a lot of time reading, looking at creative models, trying to be really thoughtful about incenting the right behavior, but not ever using shame or punishment to drive the right behaviors. And that frankly is a hard thing to do. And there's not, there's not a lot of great models for it because it's quick and easy to do it the other way there's better opportunities when you choose better because that's true of life. You improve your skill set, you do a better job, you engage with people differently, you rise up and you create a path for yourself. And so it's sort of flipping that conversation on its head of not, oh, you did this, I'm going to take that away from you. It's, oh, when you choose differently, there's going to be some other doors that, that open up because people are looking for those types of behaviors. There's a great article called, the title of it is called, There Are Only Four Jobs in the World. And so it describes the thinker, someone who has big ideas and is always saying, you know, what could be possible? The builder who can take an ethereal idea and turn it into something. The improver who will take a business and, you know, get the last 10% of improvements out of it. And the producer who just wants to do the same thing over and over. And I am definitely a thinker slash builder. I have to create, I'm involved in Hudson Valley Women in Business, which is a network of 2,200 women entrepreneurs, and I love it. You know, people ask if I miss anything from the corporate world, and I thought that I would miss the caliber of people that I worked with, and I have found that in this entrepreneurial group, and I love it. And so I do mastermind group with a bunch of them to work on each other's businesses and help us grow and see possibilities for one another and cheer each other on. And I love that space of helping other people see what's possible. Thank you for joining me this week on The Makers, brought to you by Trade and Prosper. Tune in next week for a conversation with Ralph Arenzo, one of the founders of Tuttletown Distillery, New York's first whiskey distillery since Prohibition. Hey there, this is Shane from West West Side Music. I'm the audio engineer behind The Makers, and I want to thank you so much for listening. Your support means the world to us. If you like what you hear, please follow, rate, and review on your preferred streaming service. This helps listeners like you find our show and helps us keep bringing you new episodes every Monday.